Welcome to the Light Gray Art Lab podcast. I'm Lindsay Knoll. And I'm Chris Heine. And this week, we're speaking with special guest Ty Rubin Ellingson, who's not only a contributor to the Robo Show that's up right now, but also uh, someone who's had an illustrious career in all sorts of things you might recognize. He's been in the industry for a long time and has worked on a lot of really amazing properties all the way back to Jurassic Park, but also up to now, including things like uh, Chappie and Elysium, Hellboy, Avatar, just all sorts of things going all the way back for 20 years. It's really amazing and he's a really talented and uh, fun to talk to guy. Super charismatic. And I think one thing I really loved to um, speak with him about was his thoughts on the creative process and about living a creative life. So you'll definitely be able to hear a little bit about his insights, and that'll be super cool in our interview with him in just a moment. But before we do that, we have some updates for you regarding all the stuff that's happening here at Light Gray Art Lab. As you know, uh, or maybe as you didn't know, Chris and I just returned from Japan. Konnichiwa. Yes. And so we are going to have a couple podcasts for you recapping our trip and telling you about all of our crazy adventures coming shortly. But speaking of travel, we want to give a huge thanks to everybody joining us for the Yellowstone and Grand Teton trips. We had an art camp applications open uh, a couple weeks ago, and we have filled all the spots. We've got some really awesome people joining us, and we're getting ready to go travel the world with them. As you know, it's 100 years of national parks uh, being celebrated this year, so there's a lot of cool stuff to see. We're going to speak to some scientists, look at some animals, look at natural wonders, and uh just so happens that we've been planning a couple other fun travel trips coming up here. So if you've missed out on the Yellowstone and Grand Teton adventure, uh, we've got another one coming up shortly. We'll be uh, announcing that pretty soon here. What else is happening, Chris? Uh, Well, there is an opening coming up. There is. Would you like me to speak about it? I will tell you that it happens on the most wonderful day of the year, and then you can take it from there. Is it my birthday? That happened while we were in Japan. Okay, I should know that by now. Yep, it was special. It was very special. But the second most fantastic day of the year is tax day. But in this case... (laughs) Yeah, in this case, we're going to call it the opening of Botanica. So that show, if you haven't gotten a chance to look at all the promos that are happening on Facebook and Twitter and all of the cool process that people have been sharing, um, we've got a show coming up where 120-some artists are recreating the earth's mythology as well as a lot of cool natural elements and organic things and so we've got tons of new artwork coming in here all to be displayed on april 15th the opening party of course that night is from 7 to 10 p.m so definitely come and take a peek and say hi to us if you're in minneapolis otherwise you can definitely see it online uh, all that stuff will be archived there of course on the website before that happens make sure to stop in for your last chance to see the robo show oh which yeah comes down in about a week or so so If you haven't seen it in person, uh, now's the perfect chance to stop in and check it out. Yeah, and uh, so we've got um, Ty Rubin Ellingson talking a little bit at the end of this podcast about his collaboration with Amory Liu, who is a really talented artist who's worked with us a couple times as well. And so you guys can hear a little bit about uh, that process, too, for the Robo Show. Don't we have one more thing? Yeah, there's a game night coming up on April 7th theme to be decided oh what time is game night usually 6 30 to question mark 9 30 oh, yeah. or so <laughs> usually that goes all night so usually till midnight or so that's fun so that's all coming up and of course a million other things i'm sure we're gonna plop them all on facebook blog and stuff like that so without further ado let us give you over to ty rubin ellingson and we can listen to a little bit of his insights on the creative process 
Ty Rubin, we'd, we'd love to welcome you to the podcast today. Um, we've got a lot of things to talk about with you and, of course, uh, plenty of things that we want to pick your brain about in, in terms of your creative process, uh, the Robo Show, uh, collaboration, and uh, many other things. So I was wondering, as we're starting here, if you could give us a brief introduction of who you are and where you've come from and kind of uh, what's led up to today. Uh, you can kind of give us a little background on um, the things you're interested in and, and what you've done professionally. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I was born in Minneapolis and raised in St. Cloud, which, as you know, is just a little bit north. And I really was somebody who um, uh, really had a great childhood and loved being at home. My father was a fine artist and taught at St. Cloud State University, taught printmaking there. So I grew up around artists and grew up around a lot of really awesome art. And additionally, I think my father was a big supporter of, uh, of you know, uh, anybody with a creative dream or anybody with a creative vision. He was a huge supporter. That was true with his students and with the community and most definitely with me. So I think I was given a lot of opportunities to explore uh, creatively as a, as a child. My dad had a fully functioning print studio in the basement, which I could make use of. We always had lots of paper, materials, cardboard, any kind of materials that I thought that I needed. Usually I could find it or he could get his hands on it. And so I really had a rich uh, upbringing. Uh, I went to tech high school and, uh, you know, was in the marching band and uh, did all those kinds of things. And when I finished uh, my university time at St. Cloud State, I, I came out of school at a time when the economy was kind of in a downswing. So I moved to Dallas, Texas, because I had friends there and I thought I could get a job there, which I was able to do. And then that introduced me to a whole like different kind of group of people, different, um, you know, different professionals working in all kinds of different fields. And through one of those professional contacts, I was able to get um, my portfolio out to Industrial Light and Magic. And that was in the latter part of the 80s. And so through kind of pushing and, and uh, networking and being, uh, you know, kind of open to uh, creating any kind of avenue I could to enter the film business, I, I was able to parlay that <coughs> introduction into a, a job at Lucasfilm. And so I worked at Lucasfilm from 1990 to 1995, only five years, but it was at a time when um, the company was going from doing traditional visual effects, which was the kind of visual effects that were used on the Star Wars movies and Indiana Jones films, which was using models and miniatures and uh, matte paintings on on pieces of glass and and uh, blue screen uh, uh, extraction. So all the kind of stuff that had been going on for the previous 60, 70 years in, in Hollywood with, uh, with uh, visual effects. And it was, it was at that time that they were kind of moving towards using digital visual effects. Um, so I was there in the very infancy. Um, uh, I was the visual effects art director on Jurassic Park. That would be the first Spielberg picture. I was part of that basic core crew of 47 individuals that did the digital dinosaurs. Um, that changed the whole kind of world of filmmaking, uh, put it kind of turned it on its head. And I worked on several other, uh, films at ILM, uh, Casper, the friendly ghost, the Flintstones. Uh, eventually the last picture I worked on there was the re-release of the original Star Wars when they 
uh, released that with some additional footages and some uh, fix, fixes that George wanted. So that was kind of a mind-boggling thing to actually work on the original Star Wars with the original director uh, and then get a credit on that picture. So I've had this really kind of strange, um, I don't know, like crazy life with regards to the things that I've been able to um, to find my way into. Um, and then I left uh, Lucasfilm in 1995 to go work with Guillermo del Toro on his first American picture, which was Mimic. Subsequently, I've worked with Guillermo on a number of his pictures, uh, the Blade movie, uh, uh, Hellboy 1 and 2, and most recently Pacific Rim. Along the way, I uh, had an opportunity to meet James Cameron and kept in contact with him, and eventually that led to me working on Avatar as the lead vehicle designer. And um, in the last several years since then, I've become uh, I've uh, worked quite a bit with Neil Blumkamp on Elysium and uh, Chappie, and um, he's a fantastic, uh, uh, great guy to collaborate with. And um, and then I I um, turned my uh, my boat 180 degrees back towards where I started out, which was uh, the idea of following in my father's footsteps and being an educator. And so three years ago, uh, I um, I applied for and uh, was brought onto the faculty at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia, where I teach in the Department of Communication Arts. And I am the uh, assistant chair at this point in time and working to teach primarily concept design and conceptual design and really trying to get students to um, think about their future and manage their dreams and um, and and have some uh, strategies for you know moving from uh, education into uh, forging a, a career that that will suit their aspirations that's, that's a, me in a nutshell <laughs> <laughs> that's great I, I mean i think it's one thing that i love about this is that you i'm sure have learned so much about your own creative process and just the transition from school to work to different kinds of work to the variety of projects that you've worked on and and everything and then of course returning to to giving back i think that's incredible. And I have a question about sort of the cycle that you have created. Um, so since you've, you've got a lot under your belt and you've been able to probably to explore the transitions in technology and the transitions in media and how people see film and, and the concept of science fiction and like lots and lots of transitions, both personally and also in the industry. Um, when you, now, as as a mentor and as a as a chair, when you're talking about the concept of managing new dreams and thinking about new projects, how how do you um, approach having conversations uh, with students and and kind of what they want to do? Do you do you bring a lot of your past and sort of the rules that have been established for you? in your process to the table when you talk with them and you say, okay, this is exactly how it is. Let me tell you all the rules and all the stuff. Or do you take a different approach and you say, this is an experimental avenue. Here is a theory that you can apply to making work and let's explore this thing together. Um, 
because I I am curious about how somebody with with having to work within these big structures is able to kind of free themselves from from some expectations, but yet carry forward a lot of the stuff that you've learned, especially when teaching somebody who's at the very beginning of their career. How do you manage that kind of a thing? Well, I mean, there's different levels to there's different levels to teaching. I mean, there's 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 kind of these overarching. Um, universal uh universal um concepts uh which which are i in my mind they're the most important pieces and then you know then on top of the universal pieces you're going to have uh methodological uh ideas about methods and 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 what what we you know refer to oftentimes as practice you know personal practice so the overarching uh concepts in my mind don't change they really won't they're not they probably um have always been there for artists and creatives and that's the kind of thing which would be like um learning to develop um competence you know for example to 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 think th- to take your dreams and aspirations and start to really um believe in them and be confident about them and um and and uh strategize around those um, aspirations. I think a lot of times when we look at education um, with regards to fields of expertise, a lot of that process is to learn things that are out in the world. So, for example, if you want to become a doctor, you're going to study a lot of um, chemistry, you're going to study a lot of biology, you're going to study a lot of anatomy, you're going to be looking outwards and assimilating lots and lots of information. And then those skills become yours you get to con- you eventually own them and you synthesize them in your mind so that you can make use of them and then you build the skills that are required to deal with patients and to do surgery or whatever the things that you are but it's it, a lot of it is exterior the same would be true with flying an airplane you know like learning about avionics and aviation and learning about how to how to think about um you know uh, the mechanics of an airplane and then the skills to fly an airplane um However, I think in the in the arts um, uh, there is a great deal of that. For example, if you're interested in printmaking or if you're interested in running a computer, I mean, you're going to be learning things from the outside world. But I think that uh, with artists and creatives, there's a lot that's going on on the interior. That that your imagination, for example, which is very personal, is never going to exist outside of you. You're not going to study your imagination as a as a function of the world. You're going to study it as as part of who you are and what makes you up. And so, becoming aware of where your personal aspirations dwell inside you and what they actually mean like do you want to change the world do you want to entertain do you want to just make things that make people laugh do you want to make things that have people frightened i mean there's so many ways that creativity can manifest itself but it's actually first and foremost i think an interior awareness so one of the overarching things that i talk about is you know um put stock in your dreams put stock in your aspirations and learn to be confident when presenting um those goals and aspirations uh because you're going to need them and you're going to need the people to sign on board or believe in you or whatever the case may be so that would be like an overarching one another one that i talk a great deal about is um permission to succeed 
a lot of times people want to write a book or they want to, you know, have an art show or they want to do a graphic novel or they want to do some kind of short animated film or whatever they want to do. And they talk about it for years and years and years and they never seem to get around to it. Well, there's a lot of reasons why that could be. What one I see often in students and in my colleagues even is that they just haven't arrived at a place where they've given themselves absolute permission. Is is that confidence that you think is the is what gives people permission or is it is it something else? I think there's two things. To me confidence is about the ability to act in front of others. So, you know, you have to have confidence to get on the get up on a stage and and give a lecture. I mean, look at where fears lie. You know, you, all you have to do is say is what are the big fears? You know, public speaking is a huge fear. Um so the ability to overcome a fear in my mind is confidence when i talk about permission to succeed or permissions that's more about an acceptance of the relevancy of your aspirations to put it above other things to put it as your first and primary or foremost goal set so you're really looking at it in terms of um um the thing that you're going to accomplish and that it's of utmost importance to you it's something foundational that you can kind of organize your you know your life around it becomes a strategy piece so mm-hmm. permission to succeed i think oftentimes we you know we will go to art school for example and we'll take all the classes but for some reason the thing that is inside of us has trouble coming out and i think it's because well we can we, alone in our minds we might tell things like ah that's silly or who am i to think i can do these things and everybody else is so awesome and i'm just not that capable yeah. and i'll just i'll just be fine doing these things yeah i have a I have a quick question for you about this. So I know this was the case for me as well. I also came from a fine art background. Um, So while you're in school and a lot of people in school don't know exactly where they want to go afterwards or what they're supposed to be doing or what even options are out there. Um, And I know for you, for example, we're also from a fine art background and then sort of took a leap of faith moving to Texas and sort of feeling out what is available. What was the connection from going from fine art to sort of a concept art and um, film industry? And also now when you're teaching your students, um, how do you even let them know what their options are, what they should be confident about pursuing? And I have a a second part of Jenny's question. So when you're, when, when you made the jump and you're talking about giving yourself permission to follow an interest that you were you were into did you choose at that point to pursue um kind of the you know concept art as um you know visual development as a as a thing did you choose it or it was that your your dream or was it just or something did it that kind you, of happen like fall into place yeah uh well i think that's <laughs> that i think i think that in an, well there's several pieces of that the decision to to set my sights on Hollywood was a specific decision. And it was a, what I refer to as accepting, uh, you know, stepping into my power as it were, or, or, or validating my aspirations, which is kind of perhaps, and that was in my 20s, so maybe the, the permission to succeed um, uh, was part of that. You know, I already had permission from my father and I already had support from, various sources but i think sometimes when you see a certain kind of goal as being kind of outlandish 
you know, that you can become intimidated by the outlandishness of the dream and then you won't give yourself permission to go for it or to to really um, set your sights specifically on that because it seems out of reach. And especially growing up in St. Cloud when I did back, you know, in the 1970s and 60s, I mean, you know, I, I didn't even get in an airplane until I was 17 and then I didn't do it again until I was 27. So, I mean, it was, it was felt like it was far, far away from the coast. Mm -hmm. So maybe there were certain kinds of uh, sociological or geographical uh, kinds of compressions that were at work. So maybe I thought, well, you know, I can be very happy doing these things that I love. And I did love the fine arts. I did love working in traditional media. I still do. Uh, however, you know, at some point, if you have this, this, you know, this um, kind of um, passion that just keeps showing up, it just keeps keeps speaking to you in the back of your head. Um, at some point, um, you've got to make a decision about: Are you going to put it away forever and never act on it, or are you going to try and and take your lumps? You know, come come whatever you fail or you succeed, but at least you gave it a shot. And for me, I think it, it literally took till my late 20s to get all the, get everything lined up in such a way that I could even, you know, kind of make it, take a shot at it. Now, just as, as you asked the question, I give it to you very quickly about the reality. St. Cloud State had no film program. So even though I was a huge cinema fan and even though I saw tons of movies and I was constantly at the movie theater and I read about films and I watched everything I could on TV, um, there really wasn't any practical way to get involved in film at that juncture. I did take film classes that were available in theater department that were more like film appreciation classes. And I did have a camera. My parents bought me one for my high school graduation. So I did shoot Super 8. But it was very difficult to connect the dots between what I was doing in, in my high school years or my early college years to Hollywood. Um, when I went to Texas, I actually returned to art school there and got my Master's of Fine Arts degree at Southern Methodist University, and the same thing was true there. They didn't have a cinema department. So even to have a real kind of avenue to get into cinema was very difficult. What happened for me was I'd been working in the fine arts and getting in shows and was building quite a successful career in the fine arts. but. At in the around the time I finished my graduate work, which was maybe 1987, 88, somewhere around there, there was a lot of kind of mm, change in the world of art, and it really didn't seem like I was in, as enthusiastic about the options, and and it seemed as though I could be happy creating art. However, I didn't know that it was going to ultimately kind of bring me to a place of ultimate happiness and feelings of success you know for lack of a better way to describe it so it became very um it became very important for me to to take stock in my dreams and once i finished my mfa uh before i went off and started looking for a teaching job or something like that in the arts i i thought you know i thought well dude it's time to to to, to give it the best you have and see what happens so i have a question about that um you know, when you're talking about uh, kind of going to the next step and sort of setting a, not necessarily a linear pathway to to get to, you know, where you want to be, especially if you're trying to gain perspective along the way, if you had a sort of a way to talk about how to gain that perspective if you don't have the kinds of resources that are just... Um, 
you know, con- like constantly available. Like if there isn't a film program, uh, Jenny and I were talking about the concept of external interests sort of fueling your ability to understand your potential. And one thing that I think is interesting is that if you've always had an interest in film, you probably also have some interest or some some uh, ability to understand the history of of movies that you liked and things that you've seen and you kind of, you know, you look into it deeper than maybe somebody who just kind of is like, oh yeah, it's a great film. Maybe you're looking at the mechanics of it or maybe you're looking at the history or the director's cut or, you know, things that you don't, you know, that not everybody looks at the details of. When you were moving to, even even in the midst of your career, as you got to the point where you're starting to transition technologies with some of the, the places that you have uh, contributed to, did you ever have to, or do you continue to look for outside interests to, to fuel your progress? And do you always know where you're going? with your next job or your next like challenge or is it something that as something pops up you sort of see an opportunity to learn again and you sort of go for it because why not what is that like for you well the question you asked about uh cinema that's that's kind of something that i do talk to my students about uh, quite a great deal is that especially in this in this day and age with access to the internet if you're seriously um if you're if you're seriously going to move in um, a direction creatively where you're going to try to uh, penetrate an industry, so for example, if you want to do game design or if you want to do character design for games or you want to work at an animation studio or you want to work in the film business or anything that you could describe as an, as a, as an industry or an entertainment is industry, music industry, you know, entertainment industry would be, you know, uh, how I would, de- that's how I describe it to students, then you really should, um, there's no reason, in fact, it would be a big mistake to not become as expert on that particular industry as possible. Um, so, for example, if you want to work in film, you should not only see the films you like, but you should see the films that are relevant to the history of cinema. You know, you can pick 10 films from every decade for the last 120 years and if you watched all those movies which would be only you know that wouldn't be that many that would be 100 200 movies maybe you could really have a fantastic uh, rich understanding of where cinema came from and how it developed and how it functions and you know all the various components that go into creating a film um and that without knowing it that's kind of what I did by accident because I was such an avid film watcher as a kid and then when I got a VCR which you know came out right VCRs kind of went on the market when I was in college um, you know that was like amazing and suddenly I could start checking out movies and back then they video stores would get these weird collections of movies because they didn't just get new releases they were getting movies that were being released for because they were owned by studios or whatever. And so I just kept doing that. I just kept watching everything and trying to connect it together so that my understanding of cinema was based upon, you know, some kind of wide sampling as opposed to some narrow sampling. I would say in my career in the last 25 years, I've seen a move away from a general knowledge base towards a very specialized model base where, for example, 
uh, people that do concept design these days for you know science fiction oftentimes they've only seen science fiction films they haven't seen the classics or they haven't seen humphrey bogart movies or they haven't seen you know um, gone with the wind you know just they haven't seen classics and, and that's, do you think that's unfortunate. a Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. And I was like, so, so do you think having sort of this wider net of, of things that you've consumed gives you a completely different way of approaching a topic instead of just being very specific about uh, your interests? Because I know it's really easy when you're obsessed with a certain topic or theme or director or something. I mean, you just, you know, everything about that one, like niche concept. And then all of a sudden, you're like, Oh, I'm not interested in this other thing. Why should I even look at that? And, and I feel like, again, it's a um, listening to you talk, it's it's interesting how you gain perspective through just being observant in like a that timeline of movies that you've watched. Or if you're talking about, yeah, if you're talking about that, it, it makes sense. And it um, it is interesting. And, you know, when you think about how much of an expert that you probably become in film and not just the creative process in film, um, do you think there are other things that have worked their way into your um, into your process that are are beyond that like how much of your process has had to change uh technically or how how much of your your new collaborations with studios have been more on the i guess creative direction side versus the actual drawing of the stuff i mean i know everybody evolves in different directions depending on their interests and depending on um where they'd like to head have you pushed yourself in a way that that has sort of infused your your creative process into like a series of like if art is your if creativity is your major what are all your minors i think before i proceed on that uh, which was a process question. One point I would make, just as a follow up to the um, to the idea of becoming an expert. Yeah. You know, you look at uh, an understanding of film, for example. The with, where that really plays, um, where you'll see the dividends of that kind of knowledge really play out, is when you actually find your way into an industry like that. Because what you'll find is that even though your interest may be in James Bond movies, for example, just to take something silly or westerns you know you do, that's where your main passion lies when you start to actually interact with producers or directors uh, or writers where their background especially directors typically comes from going to film school like they they would have gone to film school or they came from being interested in screen screenwriting and both of those screenwriting and film school um, are going to really bring a lot of film history into the mix of the educational process. So if I'm sitting in a room and I'm meeting with a director and a writer and a producer, and they're making references from their um, personal understanding of the film, and they're going to say, you know, something like, well, it's like, um, you know, that scene from Bertolucci's Last Tango in Paris. And they're making a specific reference, for example, to a scene with Marlon Brando with some kind of uh, environment that he's in. If I haven't seen that film, I can't understand what's being said. There's, I, I don't have any uh, ability to conceptually be aware of what they're talking about. So then I have two choices. I either nod and hope I remember to go look at it later, <laughs> or I say wow, I'm not familiar with that film. And oftentimes, because those are very um, 
fast-moving kinds of meetings, the, the, you'll, the director will say, ah, never mind. You know, they're not going to describe a scene to you so that you can understand what they're saying. They're just going to move on to the next point. You can make the same thing about music. I mean, you know, if you don't know who Chubby Checker is, it doesn't do much good if somebody references, references it. You know, like it's sort of like that chubby checker song and you go i don't know what that is and then they go oh, yeah well never mind so so it's it's about informing yourself building up an awareness and then bringing that awareness with you because when you run into other people your ability to communicate and collaborate is going to be far superior if you're all drawing from the same basic um knowledge base which in the case of film is is really can be like 150 movies i mean there's really if you really zero down and and just say okay i'm going to make myself uh, i'm going to put myself through a little summer school um that's that's how you could go about doing it is this a good analogy or i have a question and a comment at the same yeah. time so in science if I decided to take biology and then I decided to become a specialist in small mammals and then I decided to um, be a specialist in naked mole rats and all of a sudden my career got more and more specific and I got my doctorate in something really, you know, super specific, where do experts fit in then? Do they, do they still, are experts still an expert because they know all the, the history of all the other stuff too? Or... When you're working in a team of people, and maybe this also relates to my other question too, um, you know, how do you in how do you pursue those interests? Like, if you if you love westerns, and that's I mean that's your jam, do you be are you able to bring that back up as much as you'd like, or is everybody really more of a a broad learner and kind of a you know what I yeah I think I think we're talking I mean I guess mostly this morning what we're talking about at least in my mind is like the I think as creatives okay we're really we're the primary concern of a creative is to manifest the unique aspects of your particular imagination or artistic worldview like that's the goal of your life if you're a creative is mm -hmm. to manifest in a meaningful way that original part of the self that is driven to unfold I mean, that's if you want to get kind of to the very edge of it the metaphysical edge of it or the kind of mystic edge you're you're bringing into reality you're manifesting into reality an aspect of the self that is in your mind and and i believe is truly 100% unique to you. So, if you always have that thread back to that source, then you will be in a process of kind of constantly morphing or metamorphosing or evolving or transmutating, however you want to think about it. And at the center of all that is this is this artistic creative piece. And yet at the same time, all those kind of unfoldings or manifestations can take all kinds of different shapes and sizes and, and it can, they can fit into different kinds of um, methods or, or, or disciplines. So that's what I think creative people are interested in is that kind of from the interior out. When you look at expertise, like um, I love to watch film, that's consumption, I'm consuming film. So 
are those pieces of films that I like? Are those things when I watched The Wizard of Oz and I saw the feet curl up underneath the little house and it scared me? Does that does that stuff fold back into me? Yeah. Does it feed that kind of creative unfolding process? Sure. But I'm still playing another role, and that's being um, a film enthusiast. So then if I'm watching, 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 I'm, I'm bringing different aspects of different films closer and closer and closer into my primary concerns, but they're still a reflection of the exterior, which is another form of creative. That's kind of how we deal with creativity as it is a, um, a practice. That's where you were headed towards when you were talking about process. Yes, and this is a very, like, I, I love what you're saying because it's such an articulate way of, of describing this. And I think a lot of people struggle with, well, this is what I like and this is what I want to do and I only want to do these things. And I feel like, uh, you know, we're our conversation has been about gaining perspective and pursuing things and giving yourself permission, but also realizing that it is a two-part process of consumption and realizing what you are or what you'd like to be and and allowing yourself to to change you know and i i think that's such a the way that you put it it was fantastic and i think it's really hard for some people to to describe that or to even learn that about themselves and and it's been um you know i'm sure you have other things to say about it i'd love to hear your perspective on this too i'm sure when when you watch yourself go through some of these you know creative challenges and changes and over your career, I'm sure, you know, uh, working has become probably a different kind of process for you because many of the things that you're talking about, about fulfilling a bigger concept of yourself and your contribution to being a creative person. I mean, I'm sure all of that stuff is something you think about as you do projects and you try and infuse it with things that you think you personally can contribute to this thing that's happening as well as like the total of your career, the total of your creative life. Um, but I think that's also something that might come with trial and error and time. And it's so interesting because I think even, you know, I teach over at the Minneapolis college of art and design. It's definitely a topic that I think is very hard for people to, um, to just get right off the bat I think after living a little bit sometimes it's a little easier to be like oh yeah there's two parts to this or there's multiple parts to this well I have a question I guess about this so you mentioned before that you came into film right at sort of a pivotal moment where everything was changing and adjusting and even since then things have continued to change and adjust as technology has changed and as ideas and concepts of what's important in science fiction or what's important in fantasy is sort of adjusted. Um, So you've had the ability to change throughout all of these things, or at least you've kind of had to adapt, but then also the things that you're contributing um, are also changing and adapting what is in film and how we do things because you're a part of that. Do you have any perspective on sort of how you're changing as a person throughout these projects or what you're putting out is also a part of what people are consuming and remaking and um, it's sort of a bigger cycle? Yeah, I mean, again, I think that, I, I believe that there is some thread, some some identifiable thread that I could track back to drawing, you know, on the kitchen table with crayons at two and a half or three years old because <laughs> I think I, I, I bring that up to my students that you don't arrive you didn't arrive in university to study communication arts by accident. 
<laughs> I mean, you've made decisions already. So you already have a creative pedigree. Um, and that, that kind of lineage back to where that started is what I call, um, you know, you know I, 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 I put it into what I call the <laughs> illumination fortification and advancement of interior <laughs> muscles. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's actually part of the, uh, uh, I have four, four specific teaching kind of points. And one has to do with tying where you are today to where you've been and where you want to go. And it is this interior piece that, that, that we've been talking about. The exterior piece or the, the, the manifestation piece to who I am, what I do, what I'm looking at, what I'm interested in, that's always in change. That's always in flux. In fact, I think right now with science and quantum mechanics and all the things going on with technology is what we're learning more than ever is that nothing is stationary. Nothing is the same. Nothing's really going to, you know, you don't take the same two breaths twice and you don't make the same uh, brush stroke but once. And um, you just are kind of organizing things together in, in, to get projects done. But actually everything you do is very unique. So, yeah, how do you, how do you manage that kind of um, uh, changing world with regards to, you know, your your goals or your creative self or um, whatever however you think of these things and and the way that i um the way that i kind of consider it is is that you you should be open for evolution you should be open for mutation you shouldn't need to chase after everything i'm not interested in novelty and i know that there's more tools out there than i can really make use of so i'm not a chaser i don't tend to you know like dabble in lots and lots of things what i do is research I, you know i think about where am i want to go what am i trying to do and if for example i want to do it by uh, using a certain technique um, is it a technique i can do is it one i need to grow so you know when i went to work at lucasfilm for example they used alcohol design markers you know gray tone or color you know pantone design markers that was the primary communication tool that was used in the art department i'd never picked one up in my life i was a painter i used acrylics but once i saw them as the the tool that was used in the industry especially in uh, the 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 art department that i was a member of that, it made a lot of sense to not only learn them, but, but take advantage of my coworkers who were experts at it and, and really build that skill and grow that skill, which I did. And it's now one of my you know, go-to um, methods. Would I have done that on my own? Probably not. It's not the kind of thing I would have necessarily come across. But when, you, when it fit into the toolbox of, uh, of, of things that could make me more successful, then I wanted to... Um, you know, have it as, as something I could utilize. I certainly am somebody who does a lot of looking, um, certainly somebody who does a lot of considering and sampling, but I'm not, a, I'm not chasing. I'm making strategic decisions based upon how much time do I want to allocate for this and how quickly could I get returns on it, you know. So if I wanted to, like, for example, if I, you know, if I wanted to do something from uh, traditional media, for example, like if I wanted to learn to cast bronze, you know, that would be something that I know would take a lot of focus and a lot of time, and I would have to be really committed to it. So at some point I have to say, you know, at the other end of this, I'm going to have a, a bronze statue that I could set on my desk, a small, is that what I want? Is that what I want to do for the next year and spend that effort? You know, because sometimes 
we'll get excited by something and chase after it and it ultimately will be either more than we can chew or or it won't really bring the kind of creative um, impulses that we had hoped for and so I, I kind of am a strategist when it comes to um, developing uh, new tool sets or new methods that yeah. Said, yeah that said though i i am primarily a, a 3d designer right now i moved from 2d to 3d design in like 2004 and that's pretty much how i approach everything now is uh, using digital tools so when people look at breaking into an industry they get a recommendation for the standards, right? And somebody gives them a big list and they say, oh, you have to use this program, this program, and this program, and you have to research this book and read this thing and do this thing. And and a lot of that feels somewhat like a, a truncated list of like top tens, right? Everybody's looking for a list of, of shortcuts to do a thing. But maybe it's also because nobody knows exactly where to look until they've consumed these like top 10 things, right? Um, when you're talking about chasing something, do you feel like like you've been exposed to things that just sort of uh, serendipitously have happened after looking into a standard um, quite often? or do you do you think for somebody who is new and and can look at your career path and says, "Wow, that is really impressive. I see all the end results of something and can't really see your process that um, you know, transparently, possibly, what do you what do you think about the idea of top ten list for doing this thing? Or here's the here's the industry standards, and all you got to do is these you know these ten things, and you're in. Um, what's your perspective on that? Well, first of all, humans, you know, human beings uh, in general, I, unless you're actually somebody who has made a conscious decision to evaluate your successes. You, you may not actually understand your successes particularly well. I mean, that's very true. I mean, sometimes people can do amazing things, and when you ask them about it, they'll really just say it was hard work. And, and you know, that's what it feels like to them. That's what it looks like to them. Like, they, 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 they were so invested in getting to the getting to things done they were trying to accomplish, so they didn't sit and maybe really meditate on how they did it or the pieces that go into it. And that's actually something that I'm been trying to 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 think about so that it's more teachable for exactly what we've been discussing because i think if you can understand it and articulate it um you know you can probably assist a greater number of people with a greater variety of um, needs and a greater variety of goals so um the top 10 idea if you're the kind of person that's a quick learner if you're the kind of person that doesn't get frustrated you know like why wouldn't you try them all if they're not, if it's not going to really, you know, affect you in any kind of negative way. I mean, if it's if it's something where you could access the tools and and you know try them out and see how they work, that that would be fine. That would be great. However, for from my perspective and what I I try to remind students of is that the primary creative um, awarenesses, those things that are unique, those things that are powerful, um, are not going to be. F- they're going to they are going to be expressed through uh any number of medias okay so if i'm if i have an idea for uh, someone says to me ty i want a i want a robot that that eats rocks you know i need a robot that could eat rocks that were the size of a, a volkswagen van you know okay that would be a prompt Okay, so then I, that's that's the kind of information you would get from a script or a meeting with a director. I could I could draw that, 
I could draw it with a pencil on a piece of paper. I could draw it with pen, of course, you know. I could use alcohol-based markers. I could use acrylic paints. I could use Photoshop. I could use painter. I could use clay. I could use it cardboard boxes and build something with masking tape. I could get some tinfoil and maybe make a tinfoil and coat hanger uh, maquette. I could... Um, use a 3D tool. I could now I could use free tools that you can get online and I could put it in the Unreal Game Engine so that you could see it in three dimensions. In the future, I would be able to do it in, well, not even the, the future. Right now, if I had the equipment, I could do it in virtual reality. I could do it in augmented reality. And in the future, who knows what? I could do it by brain transmission. The point being that the, gro the groovy solution, the cool and kick-ass solution for the rock-eating robot is inside of me. It's a manifestation of my creativity. How I get it out to the market is less relevant to having the actual idea. And where does that idea come from with me is I've always described, anybody who wants to talk about what my primary skill set is, is that I have developed at a young age and continue to make use of, um, I'm, a, I'm a person that, that primarily deals in shapes. I think in terms of the shape, the dynamic of the shape, and what the overall silhouette is. So design for me is shape-based, silhouette-based, exterior, and then the detail comes much, much later. The detail stuff is, is really like that's just the, the, the support pieces. So by having a father who was a woodblock printer, and by growing up around a lot of printed artwork, I mean printed in a kind of fine art sense with lithography, screen printing, intaglio, woodblock, those kinds of things, I was exposed to lots of binary imagery. And having a black and white TV as a kid was very binary. So I think my primary um, skill set dwells in, in my ability to, to design shapes, to think about shapes as they relate to narrative, to think about shapes as they relate to emotions. And so um, it doesn't really ultimate ma ultimately matter how I manifest and what tools I use to express them. Those are just different um, avenues available to me as a as a designer that makes sense and and i guess along that same path um now that you're where you are and you're reflecting on sort of your your very current process um can you tell me you talked about about talking uh you talked about making things in shape and uh, and it's sort of interesting hearing you simplify your process down to, to that, you know, and, I, and it makes sense. And it's funny because I feel like there may be a point in people's career where they have, a, they start to understand who they are and what the essentials of their creative process is on, on almost like a very, uh, like building block kind of level. Like it could be any of these things, as long as it contains a piece of shape, a piece of storytelling, a piece of this, a piece of that. And it's a very like almost singular you know, big broad concept in there. Um, when you think about that uh, and going forward, do you create your own your own personal challenges as like big lofty goals that that you're like it has to have a piece of this, it has to have a piece of that, and I don't care what happens, but um, as long as it contains these three essential elements, I will be happy, and I I'd be happy doing that. Or do you 
consider like in the beginning of our conversation, setting a goal, um, setting your sights on something and giving yourself permission for something that, that maybe you don't know all of the aspects that go into it and you sort of pursue it based on a, the concept of what the final pinnacle success is if, if it were to happen. Um, what kind of doer are you? Well, the way that I look at it these days, I guess, is, is and I, it's exactly what I tell my students, and I, 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 I think that you have to be f- what I call front-loaded for success. You have to have um, a sense that um, you should be always, uh, you should always be raising your expectations for yourself and your, and your goals. I mean, I think it's just a good model. If you start to think about the alternative to that, w- w- where I always end up is that the best work you've done is, is already finished. I mean, if you think about it, if you think about like, um, well, you know, I, I, I don't know, I'm going to do kind of what I do now, but just keep doing it, then, then you're really putting yourself on kind of a kind of a stasis, you know, kind of a plateau. And I just feel like the important one of the important things in leading a good leading a dynamic creative life is to always always trust that the greatest work you will ever do lies ahead of you that's what i honestly believe i have yet to do the best work of my life i wake up every day thinking that and i go to bed every day thinking that and i actually spend a good deal of time trying to open myself up for whatever that manifestation will be you know, more recently, I've been thinking about doing some short films, just doing some live action filming, just because I have access to, you know, um, theater students and young actors and things like that. Now, is that something new? Not really. I always wanted to direct. I directed when I was in high school, small films and things like I said, that were really just kind of crappy, but they still were, um, you know, something that I um, got a lot out of and enjoyed doing. So, you know, I may do that, or I've been interested in more and more in game. Um, I sp- I'm a very avid gamer. I play a lot of um, a lot of video games, and um, I've been thinking more and more of just learning those, um, you know, richer, deeper skills that are available right now. So, like the Unreal Engine I mentioned, you can get that for free. Anybody can download it, and they could start building worlds and putting things together. And I think that I want to be a part of that unfolding as well. So, so it's like the potential of, uh, you're like, I could see there being something cool here. I don't know exactly what it is yet, but. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, I think that the goal setting is like a skill as much as anything else is. I mean, you don't, you, you know, being able to manage goals. I, I have a, this kind of, I have this thing I started doing in my teens and I, I, I talk about what I lecture. It's called the seven year plan. And the way the seven-year plan is, is it goes like this. Um, the door, you're sitting in your favorite spot of your house having a beer, and the door opens. It just blows open, and you come in. Not you that's sitting there, but you from seven years in the future. The, somehow the, you who is from seven years from now has found a way to travel back in time and visit you now today. And the question you need to ask yourself is when you see that version of you come in from seven years in the future do you instantly jump up and high five and say yes this is the this is the (laughs) fucking guy i've always wanted to be this is the manifestation i've always wanted to get to and you're you're then by default in this futuristic feedback loop that just fuels you up even more because you keep telling everybody then hey i saw who i'm going to be in seven years and damn it i got a lot i got to get going on 
Because if that can happen, if you can get in that futuristic feedback loop, then a lot of the questions we're discussing become the secondary concern. It's about opening up and being aware and being, uh, again, involved in its unfolding is the critical piece. And then the goal setting is something that you do as an ongoing part of your own personal journey. Those goals become incredibly important um, because what you start to see is that if you set the wrong set of goals or if you set your goals too low or if you don't set them in context with your underlying needs or if you don't set them in context with where the world outside you is heading or going or is about, um, you might squander. And then the seven-year and the future guy is going to come back and say, you know what, you just wasted so much energy, man. I, I barely <laughs> made it to be this awesome person. Yeah. You know? And well, I think amazing. once I started to do that, I still do it to this day. And I, and I think about, am I on the way to becoming that awesome fucker from the future? <laughs> do you get to talk to, okay, so here's a, here's a random side question. When you, when you sit down and have coffee with a friend, do you talk about this stuff with those guys? Do you, are you like, let's talk about future me or let's talk about future you. Do you ever, do you get to, do you get to indulge like, because I'm, I'm in love with our conversation. It's, it's like the best thing that I've heard in a really long time. And so I'm, I'm like, it's, it's so fun to hear somebody discuss like goal setting in that way, because a lot of times people are like, oh, I, I have kind of an idea. I'm not sure how to get there. And I don't think anybody knows exactly how. And that's that's what you're talking about with goal setting and figuring out, well, this is closer to what I want to do. This is closer to what I want to be and how I want to feel and what I want my day-to-day to be. And, you know, Jenny and I uh, do a lot of workshops here at Light Gray where we talk exactly about that, about setting challenges that get that let you flex some of the things that you might not be able to do. Um, if you didn't have a reason to, and if, or if you're not the kind of person that, that, um, can just pull it out of the air, you know, uh, some people can, and some people can't, but what's fun about this is like, you sound so passionate about these concepts. I know you get to talk about it with your students or the people at um, VCU, but do you, do you get to talk about this with other creatives in your field? Do other people share the same perspective that you have? Like when you walk into a meeting with a bunch of people and you walk out, do you feel like you're sitting in a room full of people that they get it? Like they know this, like they, they follow the same kind of like um, concept of who they want to be and what they want to do. Or do you find that it takes a, um, a very specific moment in people's lives to, to be like, Oh yeah, this is, is a thing I should think about. Well, I, again, I think it, I think we kind of touched on it earlier, and that is a lot of people become incredibly successful and and are incredibly talented in in multiple ways. Who who maybe don't uh, maybe because of how they're constructed, how they're built as a person, they don't they don't need to do that much evaluating. I mean, it's just it, it's only certain certain people who are going to be. Uh, interested in those kinds of self-reflections. I mean, I'm sure that everybody, I think all creatives by default are self-reflecting. It's just that they may not really be uh, looking with the same kinds of concerns. Like I have been long trying to understand myself in a very particular kind of way. I don't know that that's universal. So I would say in answer to your question specifically that in Hollywood, I think most p- 
people are pretty uh, self-aware because it's a very collaborative creative environment and you need to kind of know how things get done and that requires a certain kind of higher maybe quite a high level of awareness of systems and what we're kind of talking about is sort of systems thinking too you know the ability to think how do i fit into this what's my role what is my role in the context of the larger project so yeah i think a lot of people you know um have a pretty good sense of of their value and their primary creative function for a given project how they think about the future you know hollywood is sort of a built on this idea that that there's these great big films ahead that haven't been made yet. So my seven-year plan fits really easily there because no matter how big a film is in any given year, you know, the next year somebody's going to try to top it and they're going to be trying to top it in five years and they're going to be trying to top it in 10 years. So if you're in that industry, you get a sense like, wow, there's so much cool stuff happening. And and that's the same with, uh, you know, I feel the same way about video games. There's always so many cool games getting developed and things happening. And I'm sure it's true in the music business and I'm sure it's even true in theater. I don't know. But I think that, uh, where there's a slight difference is it gets back to what we very first started talking about is that that permission to succeed, permission to be a player, permission to be what I tell my students, devastatingly awesome. Um, <laughs> that is a muscle and a skill. And whether you, however you need to manifest that, however you need to think about that, however you need to become that, that's the critical piece. I can do it and I can do it well and I'm going to keep doing it until I get where I need to be. So that's really interesting. I was actually going to ask you this earlier, but you kind of answered it. Um, Because you have, I guess, sort of a resume of being able to do all these things in the past, every new project that you approach, are you intimidated by the things that you've done in the past? Sort of thinking, I have to match what I've done. I have to do the thing I just did, but bigger. Um, Sort of the sequel or evolution of each thing? Or are you approaching each project with a totally new, like, I can do anything perspective. I like the idea of being involved with certain kinds of projects. So I think I do look for certain kinds. For example, like I mentioned, I'm working with Neil Blumkamp right now. Um, You know, he's a young director. He's much younger than I am. And he's done some really interesting films that I really, I really um, was... Well, taken with and amazed by and so I may in my mind I guess I think well you know I really would like to get to know this particular director I'd really like to work with this director so I'll do specific kinds of things to try to find an introduction or to try to introduce my work to them or so on and so forth so clearly I have those kinds of drivers where they're very specific um, you know I think if you want to work in game company for example it's not a bad idea to pick a specific studio and really like study that studio and say i want to work at i want to work at ea or i want to work at you know uh gearbox or i want to work at bioshock or bioware or whatever you know you sort of use it as a template so you can have a better you know more refined target but on the other hand i think that that so much of my career has shown me that the next thing ahead that might turn into something awesome you can't identify it you don't you don't see it in advance It, it comes along and then you you have to have 
I guess, enough life experience to go, ooh, this is looking really interesting. Um, I never was, I liked dinosaurs when I was a kid. I mean, every kid goes through a dinosaur phase, and I had a couple of books my parents bought me where there was some dinosaurs stomping around that were like paintings, you know, and I thought, oh, these are cool. And then I got a plastic set of dinosaurs, but that was all before the age of six. After that, I really didn't care about dinosaurs. I didn't think about them. I didn't give them much thought. It, it wasn't a big thing to me one way or the other. But when Jurassic Park came along, and you know, My Michael Crichton was the author of the book, and it had to do with not just dinosaurs, but wouldn't it be wild if you could somehow genetically create them today in the present world? In that moment, I was doing everything I can to attach myself to that picture. Because that picture, just the way it was described, just what it contained was suddenly kind of a hybrid and it was really compelling. So then I was like, yeah, this is something I want to be in, in contact with. I want, to, I want to be a part of this. But it didn't grow as an extension of my interests. It didn't grow because, wow, I love dinosaurs and now I'm going to chase after dinosaur movies. Um, it came because I found myself in a place in time where suddenly I read about something and heard about something and went, yeah, that's cool. This is the same thing is happening right now with um, augmented reality and virtual reality. I mean, I don't, I don't at this moment have a plan to work with those things. I don't know of a project or anything, but I'm keeping a very close eye on it because I think something un unexpected and extraordinary might, might percolate out of that world. And so, it's a lot of different things. Everything we're talking about are like sliders, okay? You know, it's like if you've ever been in a mixing studio for a record company or a, a music recording studio. There's sliders. And there's a master slider, which is kind of what I see as the, 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 the inner self, this creative um, artist, designer, the, the primary concern that controls the life. That's the big overarching one. And then there's these sub-sliders. And some might be technical and some might be specific to, a, you know, kinds of external world things. And we're always going to be looking at that setup. And are we sliding those sliders in an appropriate dynamic way? So, for example, I was very interested in photorealism when I was, um, <clears throat> when I was in college. And I had the good, good fortune of meeting and working with Jerry Ott, who's still... Uh, very active up there. He's a photorealist uh, painter who um, I know is, lives in many, I think he lives in maybe a different part of the state now, but he's, um, he was somebody that worked with the airbrush and he was a master. He's a master at airbrush painting. So I learned to paint with the airbrush and I became pretty accomplished at it. Well, you know, I, when I was working with the airbrush, it was my main tool. It was the main form of artistic expression. It became incredibly important to me. Jump ahead to today, I haven't picked up an airbrush in 20, 20 years. Now, it doesn't mean I don't like airbrush painting anymore. It doesn't mean anything about the airbrush at all. It just means that we morph, we mutate, we go on to another form. And the form I'm at today is using 3D software to design. It's not using the airbrush anymore. So some people are purists. Some people want to play the acoustic guitar and that's what they're going to do their entire life and they're going to become masters at it and they're going to be awesome and they're going to have their following and they're going to have their melodies and their expressions and all those things. Other people are going to be changing form every year. Actors do it, you know, change all the time. So there's no right answer. It's more about self-awareness. It's more about understanding what will, you know, compel you to do the greatest work of your life. That makes sense. And, and you know, this is a perfect segue to this, too. As we kind of, you know, have time for maybe one more question. For the Robo Show, you paired up 
with Amory Lou and did a two-part piece. And Amory is still in school, correct? Yes, she's a senior. And so I'm sure you've watched her change and morph with her practice and things she's challenging herself on and, um, and different different kinds of concepts that she's explored and have been present for a part of that transition. And, you know, you were talking about um, picking up and, and putting down the airbrush or picking up and putting down dinosaurs, you know, and, and these types of things. Like, can you talk a little bit about your collaboration with Amory for the Robo Show? And also any thoughts about what you've learned from that collaboration or even just interacting with her and, and kind of like her process? Yeah, well, I guess I should say, first of all, it was so awesome to just have such uh, be received when I when I first contacted you about the idea of doing a collaboration, how uh, quickly you um, agreed and how powerful that was, because I hadn't actually attempted anything with a student, uh, anything like that remotely. And I think that it was kind of an experiment on that level. Um, uh, so thank you for um, your um, open-mindedness and willingness to uh, give us that opportunity. As far as the process goes, it was really interesting because my own personal work, uh, I kind of tend to work uh, with a certain kind of dynamics, uh, for lack of a better word. So I'm, I kind of think of my shape um, sensibility is fairly aggressive and kind of masculine and I'm sort of interested in if you look at the designs I did for Avatar for example these big flying vehicles and the big amp suit and robot and stuff and the stuff I do for Del Toro it's sort of masculine in nature and it's sort of it's sort of um, overstated and kind of aggressive looking and I don't know that that's necessarily who I am as a person but least the design sensibility that I guess I gravitate towards tends to be like that and Amory's um, work she her work is very um, it's very delicate uh, it's very um, detailed it's very thoughtful in a way that's very um, different to the kinds of shapes and the kinds of uh, designs that I typically am you know, thinking about and working on. And so when the, when we started to talk about this show, I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could try to um, design a, a robotic character that where I tried to kind of channel what I thought her sensibilities were, um, which which was an interesting exercise because a lot of her sensibilities and concerns as an artist are are different than mine and they're very unique to her so so the first thing we did was I kind of just constructed this robot character which um, when we when I kind of got it finished I thought well this is nothing I would have designed this definitely I can see her um, her sensibilities in this design so I felt like it was successful they did but it didn't really have a context so then she and I uh, I sent her some renderings of it and we talked about it and we both at the exact same time came up with this idea that wouldn't it be interesting if this was a kind of a a, a deity of sorts or kind of a, a mascot like a, a, a religious or ceremonious mascot or, or, or like almost like a cult had grown up around this weird robot. And so then that was enough of an idea for her to go away and to sort of develop this um, this image of these individuals who she came to call the Oath Keepers, um, who are just kind of chilling, you know, cooling their heels in the foreground while they're standing in this kind of uh, cathedral that seems to have been built to this strange robot entity. 
Um, and the narrative just kind of evolved out of doing the work and kind of going through the process and um, not necessarily kind of, you know, trying to prefabricate it, but just working back and forth, which is the ultimate way to do a collaboration is to leave lots of room for both people to, um, um, you know, participate and, and bring something uh, like response responding one to the other back and forth and a little bit of a creative f uh, feedback loop and um so that's that's how it all kind of came about and she's actually gone on and developed these uh oath keeper characters a great deal more and has been working on costume designs and it's turned into a really huge project for her um i unfortunately dove right back into uh, a hectic teaching schedule so <laughs> i haven't been doing any more on it but uh, um, it was an interesting exercise you know, we want to thank you for being a part of the show. I mean, it was really fun seeing everything come in. And as you know, you're talking about collaboration and leaving room for people to explore things. And it's definitely one of the big um, facets of what we try to do at Light Gray Art Lab is, is again, provide challenges where people can kind of uh, respond. And, you know, you know, a lot of our things are very much about that back and forth. You know, we contribute something, somebody else contributes something else and goes back and forth. And, and so it's it's been really great working with you guys on that and then also um i have really and i'm sure i'll speak for jenny too because she's right yeah. here also <laughs> i have completely enjoyed this conversation it is really neat to hear your perspective on the creative process and i think again it it was very insightful not only to hear about the transitions that you've made but also just the comments that you made about this never-ending search for for something, you know, this never ending search for truth or kind of the next step or, you know, um, the reflection that you have on your own process is, uh, something I think resonates really well with us over here too. So it's been, it's been very cool. So if people want to find you or to follow what you're doing or to see, um, you know, work that you've done, where can people find you on, on the internet? Well, I have a website that's, uh, I was, uh, I got my website very early when the internet came out, so I was able to get a pretty interesting um, uh, domain name, and that's uh, Alien Insect. So the word alien and the word insect together as one word, alieninsect.com. That's my that's my uh, website. Uh, having said that, I will say that it's in sad neglect. It's a sad website. <laughs> I, I know I, I actually haven't really used it professionally because I primarily work through word of mouth or work with directors that I've worked with in the past. So it's never really been that critical to um, my career. And so it's just kind of a online portfolio, which has subsequently, you know, gone to weed. However, I am intending on uh, getting back to doing something more interesting with it in the year ahead because I want to do some blogging and things like that. Most, uh, it, mostly, I would say, if people are interested, they should just look for me on Facebook, just Ty Rubin. Um, I'm a, I have a very active Facebook feed with lots of artists from around the world and lots of people that are, you know, doing interesting things and lots of technology stuff. And it's, it's pretty cool. And I'm always open to um, hearing from people in that uh, kind of social media place. That's fantastic. Well, thank you so much for all of your insight and all of your time. It's been amazing talking with you and we'll make sure to include your links and everything on the blog post for everybody that's interested in saying hi on your Facebook page or on your website. And um, yeah, thanks again for being a part of the Robo Show and we're very inspired. It's been really great. Thank you. It's been cool. It's a pleasure to be here. 
We want to give a huge thank you to Ty Ruben Ellingson for his time and his insight um, on the podcast today. It was really fun talking with him. And again, um, you can check out all of his links on the blog if you want to uh, say hi or check out what he's doing. Again, keep posted uh, for new details on new calls for art, new travel trips, and some other fun stuff. So where can people find us, Chris? Well, if you want to email us directly, you can email us at podcast at lightgrayartlab.com. You can like us on Facebook and stay up to date with shows and openings that are coming up. You can follow us on Twitter at lightgrayartlab. You can follow us on Instagram now, which uh, has been posting things really regularly and a lot of fun stuff. It's also at lightgrayartlab. You can also follow us on Tumblr, lightgrayartgallery.tumblr.com, where we retumble a lot of the uh, works in progress from the show and finished works from the artists and all sorts of different things. You can also subscribe to this show on the iTunes Music Store and stream it directly on Stitcher Radio. So thanks again to Ty Rubin Ellingson for his insights and for you guys listening to our conversation today. And we'll talk with you soon. Mm-hmm.